Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a note of caution for the bot fever that's sweeping government. I don't like to think that bots become sort of the peanut butter that we spread on everything, that we have to think about why we're doing it. The White House should backstop agency cyber efforts. If we could actually have the executive office of the president helping agencies prioritize, and they're there to support and make sure that the focus is on the right things. I think that's really what the intent is here. And a glide path for agencies and their inspector general offices. What we want to do is harness and leverage the work that's already on our existing websites so that that will make creation of the semi-annual report much more easy for our staff. It'll make the work that our agencies do and responding to them easier as well. It's Friday, November 12th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The competition for the successor contract to the Defense Department's Jedi Cloud deal could get a new entrant. Google Cloud Chief Executive Officer Thomas Kurian writes his company will compete for the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability contract if the Defense Department invites the company to. Google backed out of a contract to support artificial intelligence work in the Defense Department's Project Maven in 2018. The head of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Board says the model's problem may be a shortage of demand, not a surplus. CMMC Board Chief Executive Officer Matthew Travis tells FedScoop changes to which companies the department will require certifications from is the reason. Pentagon Chief Information Security Officer David McEwen said Wednesday the department may only require about 40,000 companies to certify instead of the 300,000 it thought would need the certifications before. Matthew Travis will talk more about this on Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast. A challenge is underway to break down equity barriers in government contracting. The Energy Department and the Office of Federal Procurement Policy are taking input at challenge.gov from both government and industry in five focus areas of procurement. The focus areas include locating work, lack of knowledge about contracting rules, and resource constraints. You can read more about these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The commander of U.S. Cyber Command, General Paul Nakasone, is just one of the leading government cyber experts that will join me at Palo Alto Network's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference. It's happening next Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll join me, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like Zero Trust and Endpoint Detection and Response. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. The Interior Department is digitizing every aspect of its acquisition operation that it can. Andrea Brandon of the Interior Department told you her office has bot fever because of the success it's had with its robotics process automation bot, Bob. Mallory Bart Bowman is Research Director at Gartner. She's former senior analyst at the Government Accountability Office. Mallory, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What can agencies like Interior and others learn from private sector organizations that my understanding at least is are like Interior, digitizing everything they can put their hands on? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Thanks for having me. And, you know, as you noted, you know, digitization opportunities are everywhere. And, you know, I don't like to think that bots become sort of the peanut butter that we spread on everything that we have to think about why we're doing it. And, you know, at the end of the day, every agency has important goals and mission to accomplish. And, you know, as as Chris Mim likes to say, flat is the new up. We're not going to be getting 
more money, more resources anytime soon. So we really have to think about where, how we're using staff differently. And every, every federal agency has transactional work that they have to do. This repeatable transactional work is exactly the place where you want to look at technology that's available. And it's not just about the RPA bots. That's certainly one of the tools out there. Um, there's other tools and technologies out there that replace both the transactional manual work as well as some of the decision-making work that's available. One of the things that was fascinating about that conversation with Andrea was she told me about the distinctions of different types of bots that I didn't know about before. She described unintelligent bots that do exactly what you instruct them to do. And in my mind, that sounded like macros that I used to see mm -hmm. in Microsoft Excel and other programs way back when. And then there are intelligent bots where they have guideposts, they have parameters, but the bots can make decisions and can think on their own and they have algorithms that allow them to do that. Is that intelligent bot sphere maybe the space where the government has even more tremendous opportunity to grow? I know there's still a lot of opportunity for the rote tasks, for the, the repetitive tasks to be digitized and be automated, but it strikes me that intelligent bot sphere really has almost unlimited potential for government. I think that's right. And, and you know, and again, it's about more than just the intelligent bots. You have opportunities in natural language processing, machine learning, all of those sort of technologies that fall under artificial intelligence for, um, for better decisions and better sort of piecing together information. The, the thing is, though, that sometimes when we start talking about intelligent automation and sort of automating decisions, we get scared of the government because that has big consequences. Um, but I think the important thing to remember is that just because something is automated, it doesn't mean that it is A, not traceable, or B, sort of happening independent of decisions that, you know, you, you we're talking first about the algorithms. The decisions that technology is making, it's making with information that government can can guide and can help put the decisions. And, and what we really are seeing now is a capability to connect data systems that we didn't have before. We can look at connections between, you know, metadata, whether it's public health data, population data, you know, anything that's connected to the outcomes the agency is trying to meet and the work that it's trying to do. So it's it's really an opportunity to, to do what we always want to do, to do things faster, cheaper, better. Um, and it doesn't have to be as scary as, as it sometimes feels. I love your analogy of peanut butter spreading all over everything because that's a temptation that we've seen many times over the years in government where some new thing comes along and people at agencies get ahead of themselves and they go, how can we use this, whatever this may be? How does one avoid that when thinking about the digitization process in particular or any new technology in general? How does one stay in the problem solution mode and not into the new technology utilization mode? I think it's always about knowing where you're going and knowing what the goal is of the process. I think one of the sort of the, the problems we see in bureaucracies is letting the process become somehow sacred in and of itself. But at the end of the day, we know that the process is only there to meet a specific goal. And um, so 
what are you trying to accomplish with the process? What's the best way we can serve the American taxpayer in doing it efficiently and effectively? And then what's the best way to get it done? And maybe it's RPA, maybe it's adjustments to manual processes. Maybe it's, you know, that it's not something that we need to do. Maybe it's moving something to a shared services provider and we don't need to do it in-house at all. Um, but it's really about thinking about what we're trying to do with our processes and then how are we going to get there? All of what you just described, though, is cultural and not technological, right? <laughs> it's always come back to people and <laughs> right. culture, right, Francis? You know, that um, we can't use sort of a, a big bang theory with trying to get technology implemented. It really is about understanding the culture of the agency, making sure that the technological solutions jive with the work and the nature of the way that people are getting things done. But that's not an excuse to not change things. That just because we've done things the way that we've done them for so long, it doesn't mean that we um, can't do them differently. Natural language processing, RPA, AI, I'll throw in blockchain as another one that agencies are exploring that is uh, cutting edge technology. There are lessons to learn from the private sector, as you described. There are also factors that the private sector doesn't have to think about or thinks about differently than the federal government does, right? I'm thinking of privacy, accessibility, and there are others. Uh, how should uh, an agency person apply those lenses to the kind of lessons that uh, they can learn from the private sector in applying some of these technologies or at least thinking about how to apply them? Yeah, I mean, and, and some of the lessons the private sector has learned around privacy and, and data integrity and, and cybersecurity are, are certainly transferable to the federal government. But, you know, I certainly started my career in GAO, and so I always bring my auditor lens. Um, you want this to be traceable. You want there to be a decision history so that you know where you went. Um, but the good news is with technology, um, it's very traceable. They can, you know, it can generate a list of even keystrokes if you want about everything that that happened. As is the case across sectors, there are always going to be risks and risks change when you're moving from humans doing the work or, you know, risk management is around checking and correcting for human error to technology where you're really thinking about um, managing information risks, you're managing cybersecurity risks, um, but you just need a plan and you really need to be thoughtful in that approach. Mallory, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much for coming on the program today. Thanks, Francis. It's always a pleasure. You can read more on the federal government's bot fever and find a link to my conversation with Andrea Brandon at Interior about her bot efforts in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Congress is working on a revision of the Federal Information Security Modernization Act. It would be the first major revision of FISMA in seven years. Dave Pounder is executive director of the Center for Data-Driven Policy at MITRE. He's former director of IT issues at the Government Accountability Office. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and your colleagues Mark Peters and Chris Falk are writing about recommendations that Congress should keep in mind as they're working through this FISMA Update Act. There are eight of them. And we'll link them all at thedailyscooppodcast.com in the show notes there for today so folks can 
look at all eight, but there are some in particular I want to call your attention to. The first one is giving federal cybersecurity leadership more authority to oversee cyber risk management at agencies and departments. Do you worry that that will take autonomy away from the cyber leadership and the IT leadership at the individual agencies and consolidate it at an enterprise level? Or maybe that's not a worry. Maybe that's the point, Dave. Welcome. Yeah. Well, thanks for having us, Francis. And I, I think the point here is, you know, clearly you got CISOs across the federal government at agencies and departments. And frankly, a lot of them need help and support. So if you have, you know, out of the White House uh, with the National Cyber Security Director or the federal CISO, where they're actually, uh, where they have, where they can act, help move the ball forward with these organizations, I think that's the key. So one of the big questions with those offices historically is, are they more than a policy shop? So you put a policy in place and then agencies are there to implement it. If those organizations can help with the implementation of some of these actions. So, you know, zero trust is a perfect example right now. We're putting in place implementation plans and roadmaps and the like. And if we could actually have the executive office of the president helping agencies prioritize and they're there to support and make sure that the focus is on the right things. I think that's really what the intent is here. I note that Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer, is now also the Deputy National Cyber Director. Is that kind of the cross-pollination, I guess, that you and your colleagues are looking for, Dave? Yeah, well, you know, there's been this uh, a little bit of a debate with, you know, these roles and roles and responsibilities of these various offices. And then, you know, the head of CISA and, uh, you know, that actually would help to ensure that we have a synergistic approach to those leaders. I mean, when you look at Inglis and Russia and what's happening right now, and you could, you know, from their hearings, they're pretty connected at the hip and have a common vision. And I think, you know, that, you know, there's been a debate back and forth whether, whether that's the right uh, structure or not. But really, when you look at it, they need to be aligned and have common goals and priorities to ensure that, uh, you know, everyone's on the same page out of the White House. On the same page leads me to recommendation number six, which is mandating supply chain risk management assessments through program life cycles. And you and your colleagues write the Federal Acquisition Security Council, CISA, and NIST should transform supply chain risk assessments so they operate throughout the life cycle of programs. Whenever I see CISA, I would add then Jen Easterly's name to the names that you listed a moment ago, English to Russia, and so on, because the question, especially with the establishment of the National Cyber, Cyber Director position, the question a lot of people asked was, who exactly has what piece of what when it comes to autonomy and authority? And I guess I'd ask the same thing about Recommendation 6 that I did about number one. Do you worry that this is another thing that CISA will be in charge of that gets taken away from the individual agencies? Or maybe, once again, that's not a worry. Maybe that's the intent, Dave. Well, you know, I think, especially when you look at agencies, Francis, and the size agencies, you know, CISA could be there to really help with supply chain risk management, too. But again, I I will also highlight, when you mentioned uh, Jenny Easterly, the important role that CISA plays, along working with NIST, also the federal uh, CISO, Chris DeRussia, you know, there's this Federal Acquisition Security Council, which is an interagency group that's specifically charged with helping to manage supply chain. So really when you look at it, it's a combination of CISA, NIST, and also this FAST Council working together to ensure that we're focused on the right supply chain risk management, as we point out here throughout the life cycles. We need to do this early. And Francis, one other thing I'd I'd like to mention here too is, 
It's a heavy focus on software supply chains and deservingly so with all with you know some of the incidents that happened. But really we need to look at supply chain risk management comprehensively. You know, yes, it's software, but it's also financial stability of some of the companies we're dealing with, and you know, and what are the risks to supplies and suppliers and that type of thing. And so we do, do need this comprehensive risk management approach. And I know that's been a priority of this FAST Council, and we need to continue to mature in that area. I would be derelict in my duty and fired for such if I had David Pounder on this program and didn't ask you something about Fatara. Recommendation number seven is updating congressional oversight using Fatara as a model. Refresh my memory as to where we are as far as incorporating cybersecurity into the Fatara scorecard and how Fatara is the right model for congressional oversight of cybersecurity at agencies. Yes, yeah, so Fatara does have one piece of the Fatara scorecard does focus on cyber. And what they do is that grade is provided based on the IG assessment, that's 50% of the grade. And then there's 10 metrics that agencies report to OMB collectively, whether they meet or not meet those metrics. And so what the, the thought here is, Francis, you know, you can, and I actually testified on the FAR scorecard 10 and recommended that we needed to build that cyber portion out further. But what we're suggesting here is a separate cyber scorecard. I mean, we could actually look at a comprehensive set of metrics and Congress could use that to uh, improve agency cyber hygiene. You know, one good example is, you know, with zero trust architectures. You know, we have implementation plans and roadmaps that are being put in place. You know, you could actually find a way to score those things to make sure you get the right progress. And then as you start implementing those plans, you know, with like network segmentation and other things that are called for zero trust, you could actually, you know, have uh, score that through some reporting to OMB and everything. But one, one of the keys here, I would say, is we do need improvements on our metrics. So the metrics that are currently at OMB you know, when I was back in the day when we added that column to the FATAR scorecard, there were metrics that agencies reported to OMB. But then when you went and talked to CISOs, they were using a separate set of metrics. So our thought here is on the metrics recommendation about having uh, this being a cross-agency priority goal in the president's management agenda. That's come, come up with a really comprehensive set of good metrics that aligns with what industry uses, what our top CISOs use. And to make sure that we really then use that, we could use that for congressional oversight. We could use that to streamline some audit processes. You know, there's a lot of reports, Francis, that go to Congress and uh, lengthy, lengthy audits that could actually be streamlined significantly if we had a better way of measuring. Yeah, that was going to be my final question to you, at kind of a two-part question. Could that scorecard be dynamic that people, like a dashboard, you could go look at at any time and could that scorecard reasonably replace these FISMA compliance reports that drive agencies completely insane? Exactly. So, Francis, the big debate here is always, you know, the amount of resources and time that goes towards these audits. Uh, they end up coming out. They're not timely because, you know, the, the information is rather dated. So having a streamlined set of metrics would save, you know, time, uh, resources, and actually would probably improve our cyber posture much better if we, if we had a comprehensive set of metrics here that we, we used. Sounds like a win-win for everybody. Dave Pounder, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us, Francis.
You can read more about the Fatara scorecard, and you can find a link to Dave's paper in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Success in zero trust is a culture mindset as much as a technology mindset, according to the Chief Information Security Officer at Idaho National Laboratory. Robert Roser is on Monday's program. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The inspector general community in the federal government wants to stop doing some things it's doing now and start doing things it can't do now. Allison Lerner was one of the IGs to explain to the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee recently what those things are. She's the IG at the National Science Foundation and chair of the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency. Allison, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's the main message that you wanted to convey to the committee? Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here, Francis. And I think the main thing that we wanted to accomplish was to engage with Congress about the importance of shoring up, um, taking action to ensure that IGs have the independence that they need to do their work. You have a number of categories of uh, areas like that that you mentioned in your testimony. A lot of folks have focused on the subpoena authority that you want, and we'll come back to that. But the thing that jumped out at me was the discussion about reform of semi-annual reports from offices of inspectors general. How do you want them to look differently? What work would that mean would be different for you and, and IG offices across government? And what would be different for the folks that your offices work with, the rank and file folks in the agencies, sure. Allison? That's a great question. And one of the things that we're seeking to do here is to bring our semiannual reports into the 21st century. The, the reports were created back in 1978 when IGs began doing their work. And they've evolved somewhat over time, but they haven't caught up with the, the, the amazing advancements we've made in getting our work out to the public. You know, when I started in the IG community in 1991, the only way people could see our work was through our semi-annual reports. Nobody had a website. It was that or making a, a request under the Freedom of Information Act. That changed when we, we had websites and now we have oversight.gov that pulls all IG reports together in one place. What we want to do is harness and leverage the work that's already on our existing websites so that that will make creation of the semi-annual reports much more easy for our staff. It'll make the work that our agencies do and responding to them easier as well. And I think they'll make them, you know, better and we can really focus on the, the most important matters, highlighting those in the report. And that adds value to all of our stakeholders, including the public. You mentioned oversight.gov and I have mm-hmm. spoken about that with you and with your predecessor yeah. as chair of Siggy Michael Horowitz on a number of occasions. And that lends itself, I think, to another one of the topics that you addressed in your testimony, and that is improving SIGI transparency and accountability through a single appropriation. That's something that you and Michael and the other inspectors general have been asking for yeah. for a while, isn't it? Uh, resources for SIGI as an organization itself and not trying to kind of do it on an ad hoc basis, support the organization on an ad hoc basis. Am I reading that right? You absolutely are. I mean, right now, SIGI is funded by, we, we collect 
a small percentage of the 75 IG's individual appropriations. It's a time-consuming process. It's done through the appropriations, but you know, through 75 different appropriations. So Congress doesn't have real visibility into our funding. And you know, we 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 think that that they deserve that. And an appropriation would enable both the, the president through the Office of Management and Budget and Congress through the appropriations process to have a better say, a more clear and direct say in, in how we do our work. In the event that that were to happen, what does the fr- what does the the timeline look like for other things, whatever they may be, that SIGI can offer regarding transparency and accountability in its own community if you were to get that single appropriation from Congress? Does that mean you'd be able to do more things that you can't do now, Allison? It, it's possible. Um, you know, it all depends on, you know, what Congress wants from us and what they're willing to fund. But we would have, a, a, we would be better positioned to make the case for those um, needed improvements over time. You know, it's it's just so much easier to do that through, you know, the centralized process than trying to push it out through 75 different uh, OIG's appropriations. It's crazy. Accountability across the IG community is another one of the issues you addressed in your testimony, Allison. Accountability, as you wrote it, of inspectors general and their senior leaders. Why is that something that you thought was necessary to highlight when you were testifying to the committee, ma'am? Well, for in order for us to do our work, um, we have to be seen as holding ourselves to at least the same, if not a higher standard, uh, that we hold the people that we investigate to. So that's why our integrity committee, which is was created to investigate allegations of wrongdoing by IGs or their 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 senior uh, direct reports, is one of our least well known but most important com- committees. Because to to be credible, we have to be clearly seen as holding our own to. Uh, um, appropriate standards. I note that uh, integrity is actually in the name of the committee of yes. uh, that organizes you and your colleagues. And you write in your uh, written testimony, the uh, integrity committee's work has increased steadily over the past five years. Um, what's the driver behind that in your view, uh, Allison? I think in no small part, it it has increased because the members of the integrity committee have done a lot of outreach to ensure that people understand that they are there and that they um, are the right place to send concerns or complaints about inspectors general. Um, so I think that has had uh, a significant impact on the uptick in the number of cases that they're grappling with. Um, another item before we get to the big kahuna that uh, the other mm-hmm. media outlets focused on is um, you wrote about strengthening the independence of inspectors general and you talked to the committee about the fact that there are still a number of vacancies at yeah. agencies across government where IGs or, or permanent IGs are not in place. What's the role of your colleagues and the IG community in general in either advocating for that or helping to suggest candidates of people who potentially could take those jobs or anything like that that would add to the long-term benefit of filling those spots and keeping them filled moving forward? Sure. The One of SIGI's responsibilities is to make recommendations to the president or to agency heads when they need to appoint an inspector general. So we have um, 
as long as SIGI has been in existence, we've had an IG candidate panel that's worked with the White House to help them um, fill vacant IG positions. And that's ongoing right now. It's a great resource. Um, in When the Trump administration began, they, they uh, asked us to expand what we were doing and actually conduct interviews with individuals who were interested in holding IG positions. And so we, we did that throughout the Trump administration and made recommendations and we're continuing to do it now. And that gives us a, a much better insight into people who would be effective IGs and we're happy and, and, and we value the opportunity to provide that feedback to the president um, agency head positions are normally filled competitively, so we, we have to work differently to support agency heads because there is a, 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 I know, a competitive hiring process going on, but we work to ensure that they know how to phrase the questions when interviewing um, people uh, and, and in the sort of person they should be looking for. And we provided a lot of support to those folks as well. All right. Um, as I mentioned, the big kahuna is the expansion of testimonial subpoena authority. Uh, that got a lot of the headlines after your testimony, uh, Allison. Yeah. And you wrote in your testimony, this authority is especially important in cases where a federal employee resigns or retires. That's been a frustration, I know, for IGs for years. Yeah. Someone uh, is suspected of misconduct and he or she decides, I'm just going to retire and then I'll be untouchable. Is that what you're going for here to remove that untouchability for somebody who leaves government? Absolutely. But it's not all. I mean, we definitely want to be able to go after federal employees who retire before we have a chance to talk to them. But there are also many other people that we can't get to directly. That includes contractors, grant recipients, subcontractors, sub subgrantees. At this point, they, they can voluntarily agree to be interviewed, but we can't compel the interview. Um, and, and we have had, you know, you heard Michael talking about the impact on the Nasser case. Um, it, you know, it's it's, but it's not just the high-profile cases. It's the run-of-the-mill work that we do, and and our inability to compel um, conversations with these people undermines our ability to hold folks accountable, and 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 that's not good. And you propose a solution in your testimony. Siggy recommends that uh, testimonial subpoena authority for IGs mirror the IG's current documentary subpoena authority, similar to the testimonial superior, excuse me, testimonial subpoena authority. I'm not good with all the legal terms like you are, Allison. Recently granted to the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee of Siggy. So this kind of exists now or a model for it already exists. It doesn't sound like it's a big jump to be able to provide it structurally, at least. Right. Yeah, we have 30 years of experience, 40 years of experience as a community and, and, and issuing documentary subpoenas. And a great deal of thought and, and care goes into doing that. In my office, there are three agents, two attorneys who review those subpoenas before they get to me. So you've got six brains and six pairs of eyes looking to make sure that we're appropriately using that authority. And it is very seldom across the community where a subpoena is not upheld if someone questions it. So we built a strong foundation and we can we can utilize that foundation with some additional protections because obviously compelling people to speak is even, you know, is a step beyond asking for their documents. And we are committed to building, you know, appropriate additional controls to ensure that we use this authority wisely. 
Allison Lerner, the chair of SIGI and the IG at the National Science Foundation. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. You can find a link to Allison's testimony and a video of the hearing in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show, thanks very much for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A look at the culture of zero trust on Monday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.